of Peter. Uh, so let me invite you to turn there with me now. First Peter uh, and the third chapter and the first six verses. First Peter 3, 1 through 6. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Father, help us now. Speak to us. Let it be that the wives in this room would be helped, uh, that the future wives in this room would be helped, uh, that men would be helped as they think about uh, their wives or their future wives, what to look for in a wife. Speak to us. Help us. Help me now as I open your word to your people. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Frightened. That's the possibility that Peter poses at the end of our text, isn't it? As to how a wife might respond as regards to submitting to her husband. Frightened, verse 6. Now, he commends there, of course, submitting to one's husband without being frightened by any fear. But the fact that he includes this part of the teaching, the fact that he includes this part about submitting without being frightened is an indication, isn't it, that being frightened is a significant possibility. He's, he's showing us here that a woman very well could be frightened regarding this matter of being submissive to her husband. Because what if my husband isn't wise? Or what if he's in some ways not godly or thinking clearly? In other words, what if my husband makes decisions that I might not agree with, that I might not think are the best, that I might think actually will lead to difficulty for me or for us? For instance, what if I'm not sure about how he wants to invest that money? What if I'm afraid that it will come to nothing? What if I'm not sure about this new job and the new city that he's proposing uh, for himself and our family? What if he wants us to move away from my parents? What if he, what if he feels called to do missions in some dangerous place? What if he's encouraging our kids to be missionaries and they're going to leave and maybe they're going to go to a dangerous place? What if he's asking me uh, to support him in taking a job that uh, isn't going to make as much money and it's going to be harder to make ends meet? Or what if he's asking me to support him in a job that's going to take him uh, fairly often away from home? What if he's wanting me to not work or to quit my work so that I can take care of the children and be at home? What if he asks me to do less with or, or do, do with less grocery money 
Something as simple as that could be fearful, right? And perhaps we could think of other things as well. There are temptations, you see, for a woman to be frightened with fear as regards to submitting to her husband. There are ways that she might be frightened that he's making a decision that's going to be difficult for her to bear. And we'll come back a little later and consider what exactly Peter is urging wives against here at the end of verse 6. What being frightened with fear means here. But for now, let me just say a few things. First of all, to you ladies, uh, let me say to you that you must take note of the fact that while Peter and God who is inspiring him to write these words, while Peter and God are acknowledging the possibility of your being frightened as regards to submitting to your husband, yet Peter and God in back of him are still commanding submission to your husband. You wives, be submissive to your own husbands. But then let me also say to you men now, husbands and future husbands, the command in verse 7, which we'll come to uh, at another time, but the command in verse 7 to live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, that command likely includes the idea of being understanding with your wife in the weakness that Peter has just addressed. To be understanding with your wife in the weakness of her temptation, perhaps, to be frightened regarding submission to you. So keep that in mind tonight as you hear God's word, men, to your wife or your future wife. Think about the potential of her being frightened regarding submitting to you and bend your heart to live with your wife in an understanding way. It's not easy for her to do what she's called to do. And then note this, men and women both. The mention in verse 6 of the possibility of a wife being frightened, coupled with the probably connected command to husbandly understanding in verse 7, these two things together surely indicate that Peter and the God who inspired Peter to write these things are sensitive to this temptation in a woman's life. The way God addresses this matter and addresses husbands in verse 7 show that he is sensitive to a woman's temptation to be frightened regarding submission to her husband, which is impetus, men, verse 7, for you to be sensitive yourselves, and which means, women, that God is not throwing this command out hard-heartedly. God is not saying here, yes, you might be tempted to be frightened, but just bow up and obey your husbands. That's not the spirit of what he's saying here at all, is it? No, the mention in verse 6 of the possibility of you being frightened about submitting to your husband or in connection with it, coupled with the probably connected command for your husband to be understanding towards you in verse 7, these things together surely indicate that God is sensitive to your temptation to be frightened, that he's sensitive to the challenge that submission can be, which means, ladies, that he is altogether approachable if you come to him wrestling with this temptation to be frightened. 
God will not shut you down and harshly turn you away and tell you to just suck it up. He is sensitive to the challenge that you may face in this regard. However, note that his sensitivity to you also adds another layer to what we observed earlier when we saw that God acknowledges the possibility of a wife's being frightened regarding submission and yet commands it nonetheless. Because now we see that God not only acknowledges the possibility of being frightened, but that he is even sensitive toward this potential challenge in a woman's life, and yet he still commands submission nonetheless. He still wants you to obey in this matter, ladies, even though he is sensitive to the potential difficulty of it. And I hope that moves you to follow his commandment. So with all that said, I want us to proceed now uh, noticing several things in this passage, uh, and one of them stepping outside the passage, uh, and that is the first thing, the context. Several things tonight, several headings tonight. The first is that we need to see the context. We need to note that we have picked up this evening in the middle of a larger section here in 1 Peter, which has as its heading the words of chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And that in the day of visitation means, says the NASB footnote, in the day of Christ's coming again in judgment. So we've picked up this evening with verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3 in the middle of a larger section. And the heading for that larger section, the theme for that larger section is keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, among your unbelieving neighbors, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of Christ's coming again. That is Peter's theme for the next 25 verses of this letter after chapter 2, verse 12, and all the way down through chapter 3, verse 12. Beginning in 2.12 and ending in 3.12, what Peter is doing is urging Christ's followers to behave excellently among their unbelieving neighbors so that in the very areas in which those unbelieving neighbors falsely accuse them of evil... Christians will actually have a good testimony which their neighbors will see and which will cause those neighbors to say when Jesus comes again, well, you know, actually, those Christians were good people after all. Their God made a difference in their lives. Their gospel made them holy. Their Jesus changes people and God will be glorified by it. And, of course, we're to take this mandate as our own, brothers and sisters in Christ. The Holy Spirit says these words to us, doesn't he? He says these words to you, dear Christian. And so I urge you, brother or sister in Christ, to hear them for yourself. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, observe, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, 
As I say, that one verse is the heading, it's the theme for the next 25 verses that come with it. Having given this overarching command in chapter 212, Peter goes on to spend 25 more verses unpacking specifics as to how this command is to be kept. And one of those specifics, one of the ways that we are to keep the command of chapter 2 verse 12 is by, verse 13, submitting ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles and so on. How so? Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And he goes on to say that that includes the institution of government in verses 13 and 14 and submission in the workplace in verse 18. And tonight, Peter says that this submission which is a way of keeping our behavior excellent among the Gentiles for the glory of God, this submission to every human institution includes a wife's submission in the institution of marriage. Because he says now in chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way, just as I called you to submit to the government, and just as I called you servants to be submissive to your masters, in the same way... Verse 1, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And what all of this means, what all this context means, is that submission to your husband, ladies, is one way in which you can keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day when Jesus comes again. Submission to your husband is one way you can behave excellently among your unbelieving neighbors so that in the very areas in which they accuse you falsely of evil, you will actually have a good testimony. And your neighbors will see it, and they will say when Jesus comes again, those Christians were actually pretty good people after all. Really good people after all. Their God made a difference. Their gospel made them holy. Their Jesus changes people. So... If your neighbor should slander the way that you behave as a wife, submit to your husband so that they will actually someday say, no, they were good people, and they'll glorify God when Jesus comes again. Now, how does that work? That logic of having a good testimony in an area in which unbelievers might slander you, that logic combined with the command to be submissive to your own husbands, is probably an indicator that the culture in which Peter, uh, Peter's original recipients lived probably expected women to submit to their husbands. The culture into which Peter is originally writing probably expected women to be submissive and perhaps slandered women, chapter 2, verse 12, Christian women, saying falsely that they weren't doing so. So maybe it worked like this. Maybe uh, these pagan neighbors of theirs, these unbelieving neighbors of theirs, maybe they heard that uh, women in Christianity are members of the churches just like men are. And or they may have seen examples of Christian men treating their wives with 
honor and dignity and respect. And perhaps seeing these things, seeing the exaltation of women that is in biblical uh, religion, perhaps some unbelievers falsely assume that these Christian women are overstepping their bounds. These Christian women aren't obeying their husbands because look at how well uh, they're treated. They must be uh, sort of running the show. And that would be slander. It It was false if that was what was being said. And what Peter is saying, coupling chapter 2, verse 12, the big theme, with this part of the theme here in chapter 3, what Peter is saying is that Christian women should submit so as to give the lie to those kinds of false reports. And so as to cause the Gentiles to actually see that Christian women are models of submission and to glorify God someday for what they see in these women. And, of course, that's exactly how we need to think of it playing out in our neighbors' lives as they someday hopefully glorify God in the day of visitation in context today in which believers still have an expectation that women should submit. In other words, for women around you or women out in various cultures in the world who still um, by God's common grace, understand uh, that a wife is to submit to her husband. You want to live in such a way that they will look at you and, and go, I, I, don't, I can't slander them anymore for not submitting to their husbands because I see that they do it and that they'll glorify God when Jesus comes again. But here's the thing. The context in which that is the case in which women expect or the culture expects women to submit to their husbands, that, that culture's on the wane, isn't it? At least where we live. Many of our unbelieving neighbors have a very different expectation for women and submission. And yet this command in chapter 3 still stands. And the reason given for obeying it in chapter 2 verse 12 still stands as well. Ladies, you can still submit to your husband as God commands, and you can still, by doing so, silence people's slander against you as a wife and bring about praise for your God from their lips. How so? Well, the way our neighbors tend to think is often different, and thus the angle from which they glorify God and the way in which this will specifically work out may well be different as well. Something like this. Modern men and women may someday find themselves saying, if you ladies are godly and and submissive to your husbands, modern men and women may find themselves someday saying, you know what, even though I criticize those women for submitting to their husbands, I was wrong to criticize them because the way that they lived actually now I see from their testimony was right. In other words, for many people around us, the way it's going to work out is not that they're going to say, oh, you know, I thought that those Christian women were insubmissive and that they weren't doing right by their insubmissiveness, but I was wrong. And I glorify God that he changed them and made them who they were. But more along the lines of, even though I said to to or about Christian women, you're just being a doormat by submitting to your husband. The way they lived and the fruits of the way they lived, submitting to their husbands, proves that they were right. And that the ways of their God are right. 
You see how it works? Whatever your neighbors think, if you will honor the Lord, it will prove to glorify the Lord. So that's the context which gives us uh, this reason that Peter is, is addressing with all of these various uh, ways of keeping our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, this reason for doing so. But now let's look uh, at the command itself in chapter 3, verse 1. So the context and then the command. The command is, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Straightforward, right? You wives, be submissive to your own husbands. You wives, follow your husband's leadership. Do what your husband is asking of you. Submit your body to him by being sexually chaste, verse 2. That's a form of submission here in the context. Being chaste means I am submitting my body to my husband and therefore not opening my body up to other people. You wives... Be submissive also means be respectful, verse 2, which is a submissive demeanor that will show up even when you're not directly obeying something that he's asked of you, but you're just relating to your husband in other ways. Respect will show itself up as I relate to my husband in ways that demonstrate that he is the head of the household and with a gentle and quiet spirit, which we'll come back to. All this is under this command. The command is fairly straightforward. You wives be submissive to your husband. It means following his leadership, doing what he's asking of you, submitting your body to him in chastity, being respectful to him as well. That's the command. But then thirdly, we need to see that attached to this command is an incentive, an incentive for keeping it. You wives be submissive to your own husband so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as, wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Now, there's an incentive there, but before we notice the incentive directly, uh, notice that here's perhaps another reason that Peter began the verse with in the same way. Not only because he's already mentioned submission to the government and submission in the workplace, and now he's saying that wives in the same way must be submissive people as well, but perhaps also Peter begins with the words in the same way here because he's just finished speaking about servants submitting to bad masters. And now he's about to speak in verse 1 about not-so-good husbands. And perhaps he says in the same way here to indicate that just as servants must submit even to bad masters, so he wants wives in the same way to submit even to the sort of husbands that he's about to talk about who are also not what they should be, just like those masters. And to the point of the incentive, not only are wives to submit even to husbands who are disobedient to the word of God, but submission to one's husband comes with an incentive that if your husband is such a man, if your husband is disobedient to God's word, your submission, your following of his leadership, your respectful behavior toward him, you're submitting your body to him in chastity, you're doing what he asks you to do, may actually be used of God, Peter says, to win your husband to better ways of living. And maybe even to trusting in your Jesus. 
even without you having to say anything about these matters. So notice it with me. Be submissive to your own husband so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So here's the deal. Even Christian husbands can be in some ways disobedient to the word. But the submission of a godly wife can be used of God in winning them over to obedience. And non-Christian husbands are disobedient to the word in certain specific ways of living, and they're disobedient to the word as the overall tenor of their life. But Peter is saying that God can win them over to better ways of living and even to faith in Jesus using, as part of his plan, the submissive testimony of a wife. You wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, I'm not sure this verse is saying that you shouldn't say a word to your husband. When it says they may be one without a word, I'm not sure that it's saying you shouldn't say a word to your husband. It may rather just be saying that even if you don't say a word to him, maybe because he's too volatile for that, um, Maybe because you've said your piece already. But even if you don't say a word for one reason or the other, he may be won over by the example and the blessing of your submission to him. So it it may not be saying a wife should never say anything, but even if she doesn't for one reason or another, her husband is like Nabal, uh, such a worthless man that no one can speak to him, Um, or she's already said all that she needs to say and she doesn't want to nag him. Even in that scenario where she's just decided to say nothing and live submissively, God can use that. Now, this isn't to deny that we all need words, particularly, especially, uh, the words of God to win us out of disobedience and to win us out of unbelief. But again... Maybe you've already spoken the needed words, and now it's time for the testimony of your behavior. Or maybe someone else has already spoken the words. Or you're asking God that someone else will, and you're going, ladies, to live God's word out in front of this man by submitting to him. Be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. That's an incentive to submission. Now let me ask you, ladies, do you believe that God can do that? Do you trust that God can use your testimony alongside your words or after you've said your words or even in the absence of any words on your part? Do you trust that God can use your simple submission to your husband as part of his plan to make your husband a different fellow, to change the way your husband lives, even to win him over to faith in Jesus. This incentive is not the only reason why a woman should submit to her husband. It is certainly a good reason. And I urge you to take it to heart and to trust God with it. So then the context, the command, the incentive, then let's notice and I love this point, the beauty of submission. The beauty of submission in verses 3 
through 5. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. So, verse 5, submission is an adornment. The holy women of former times adorned themselves, we're told, by being submissive to their own husbands. Their submission, in other words, added beauty to their persons. It adorned them, just like jewelry around a woman's neck, braids in her hair, or a dazzling dress hanging down from her shoulders all add beauty to a woman's body. Verse 3, submission adorned these women. It made them all the more beautiful. And notice in verse 4, the kind of submission that God is calling for here, this kind of submission that is actually beautiful, is not, verse 4, obedience through gritted teeth or obedience to the soundtrack of grumbling coming out of your lips. Because the, the adornment Peter is talking about here, the beauty that he's talking about here, which is said to be submission, Submission is adornment in verse 5, but in verse 4, it is a gentle and quiet spirit in the hidden person of the heart that is said to be adornment. And so the idea is that the submission that is beautiful, the submission that adorns, verse 5, is submission that is done, verse 4, from the hidden person of the heart with a gentle and quiet spirit. The submission that is beautiful is not merely outward obedience while the heart chafes against the husband or the teeth are gritted to force oneself through to do the thing that's asked. The submission that is beautiful is when the heart is submissive, is when there's submission going on inside the woman and not just in her external actions. Is that your heart, ladies? Is there submission in the hidden person of your heart? Note, too, that the submission that is beautiful is done with a gentle and quiet spirit. Not with complaints, not with grumbling about what's been asked of you, but with a gentle and quiet spirit, a gentle and quiet demeanor. And let us also say that this gentle and quiet spirit will show itself even when one is not being called upon to submit in some particular way but also just when a wife is relating to her husband at every other time. A woman who has a submissive heart will have a submissive demeanor, a submissive attitude, a gentle and quiet spirit about her, even when she's not obeying a specific directive. And this heart, this spirit, will demonstrate that she respects this man as the head of her household, as her God-given leader. And note something else about this gentle and quiet Spirit, it's an imperishable quality. Verse 4, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Peter likes that word. He uses it a number of times in this letter. And here he uses it to refer to a gentle and quiet spirit in a woman's heart. It's an imperishable quality, which given the context of verse 3, is probably to say that while physical beauty fades away, A gentle and quiet spirit does not. 
jewelry, braids, dresses, even innate beauty in a woman's body fades away, but a gentle and quiet spirit is imperishable. And it is with this spirit and the submission to which it gives rise that women should adorn themselves. It is with this spirit and the submission to which it gives rise that women should make themselves beautiful. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Now notice, if you're reading the New American Standard Bible with me, you'll notice that they have the word merely in verse 3 in italics, which means that that word is not in the original Greek, but that the translators believe that that word is implied by the original Greek. And so they have added it here to show us the implied meaning. And I think they're probably right to do so. Because physical beauty is spoken of positively in the Bible, even as it relates to outward accoutrements and adornments. And so uh, I don't think, uh, with the translators, I don't think Peter is saying your adornment must not be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, as though you can't do those things at all. But I think they're right to say what he means is not merely external. So that's good to, good to know if, you're, if anybody has braids in their hair tonight, I don't see any offhand, or jewelry on their neck or their wrist. Um, let your adorn, or your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. And I think we should probably say uh, that the intent is your adornment must not even be mainly external. Your adornment must be mainly the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. And notice this too before we leave this point regarding the beauty of submission. Actually two things. Peter is talking here to wives He's talking here to wives. But that is not to say that women who aren't yet wives or women who are no longer wives should not adorn themselves in the very same way, right? This passage, though it's directed to women who are married, applies to women who are not married as well. What is beautiful, what is precious in the sight of God is a gentle and quiet spirit even if you don't have a husband to submit to, have a heart that is ready to submit to the leaders that God puts in your life, whether it be your parents or your boss or the policeman or the government in other ways or whomever it may be. And then, and then this, before we leave this point, regarding the beauty of submission Notice that this imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit is precious in the sight of God. It's precious in the sight of God. Now, submission is beautiful to a husband. Verse 2, it can attract a husband's eye 
to the wife's behavior and thus to her God and his ways. Submission is beautiful to a husband. Submission, as we saw in the larger context of what Peter is saying here as a whole, chapter 2, verse 12, submission is beautiful to our lost neighbors. If they see it, they will someday recognize its beauty and glorify God. But submission is also beautiful to God himself. A gentle and quiet spirit is precious in the sight of God. So ladies, do you want to be beautiful to your husband? Do you want to be beautiful for the wor- to, to the world for the sake of your God? Do you want to be beautiful to God himself? Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. The beauty of submission. Two more things fairly quickly, I hope. Uh, An example, an example of submission in verse 6. So he he talks about the holy women in former times being submissive to their own husbands. And here's an example. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, where did that happen? It happened in Genesis 18. Verse 12, you can turn there with me or you can just listen along. But in Genesis 18, uh, we read that the Lord appeared to Abraham uh, by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And Abraham uh, had Sarah uh, prepare a meal, uh, verse 6, and Then they said to him, um, these three men who were standing opposite him, they said to him in verse 9, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, There in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Now, that's an amazing story, an important story, a wonderful uh, set of events. But notice what Peter draws out of it in verse 12. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? My Lord, meaning my husband. I'm too old to have a baby, and he's too old to have a baby too. And shall I I have pleasure? Shall I have a baby when I'm too old and my Lord is too old? The fact that she calls him Lord is not the main point, but Peter's noticing, did you hear what Sarah called her husband? 
She called him Lord, which means master, which means she is recognizing him as her head. Now, I'm not suggesting that you men go home and ask your wife to start calling you master or Lord. But what Peter is saying, ladies, is that this is how you should think of your husband. He's the head of our household. He's, he's my leader. He's my head. God-given head, leader in my life. And so Peter notices that's the way Sarah thinks of Abraham. And he says, that's the way you wives should think of your husbands as well. So there is an example here. And then finally here, we've already touched on it, but we come back to it now. Uh, finally here, there is a fright, a being frightened by fear. We already talked about um, some things related to this, including why a woman might be frightened by fear uh, connected with submitting to her husband. Um, but I said that we would think about what it me- means to be frightened by fear connected with submission to a husband. Peter may simply mean here, ladies, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have fear in your hearts. You shouldn't be frightened in your hearts um, to submit to your husband. But the way he phrases it, frightened by fear, by any fear, may be an indication since there's frightened by fear, since fear is the thing that is frightening you, that may be an indication that There is fear. If there is fear in your heart, you mustn't be frightened by it in the sense of you mustn't let your fear overtake you so that you actually respond in fear, so that you actually live in fear and don't submit to your husband. That may be what he means, and I think that may be what he means also, uh, not only because of the way that um, he writes there in verse 6, but also um, because we just know that we're often afraid and perhaps Um, What God is asking of us many times when we are afraid is, trust me and don't act upon your fear, but rather act in faith, even when you are afraid. The psalmist said, when I am afraid, I will trust in God. So perhaps what Peter is saying here is there shouldn't even be fear in your heart, but perhaps what he's saying is when there's fear in your heart, don't act upon it. Don't be frightened by that fear. Don't, don't act in a frightened way. Don't respond in a frightened way and thus not follow through on submission to your husband. But here's the question. How are you going to do that? How is it that if you're married and if your husband is making a choice or asking you to follow him in some way or asking you to support him some way or asking you to do something, not something that's morally wrong, that's, that's not what we're talking about here, but something that makes you wonder, I'm not sure if this is going to turn out the way I'd hoped. I'm not sure if this maybe is going to be difficult for me. How do you actually not be frightened by fear? And I'm, I'm asking that question in that sense of, How do you actually have fear in your heart but not react in fear? Not react by being frightened in the way you walk? Well, I think 
that the answer is that we must do just what we saw last time that Jesus did, not in a situation of fear, but in a situation of being reviled. Do you remember up in chapter 2? While being reviled, he, Jesus, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, namely God. And we said when we looked at that that uh, it's prob- what Peter's probably doing here is not only saying Jesus didn't revile um, and he entrusted himself to God instead, but that what Peter is saying is he didn't revile and he entrusted himself to God, which is the way in which he didn't revile. He entrusted himself to God so that he wouldn't respond to the evil being done against him. He didn't revile in return by entrusting himself to God. He was faith in God who judges righteously. His faith that God would make things right, that God would work all this out and sort it out and care for him and make it well in the end is what kept him from reacting to the reviling that was coming his way, to the ugliness that was being thrown at him. And I say to you, surely that is a strategy, ladies, for submitting to your husband, even when you're afraid. Surely that is a strategy for not letting fear overtake you so that you walk unsubmissively out of fear. You trust God who judges righteously. You entrust yourself to God who will take care of everything and make everything right. If your husband is making a mistake, God makes no mistakes. If your husband costs your family money, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If your husband is asking you to do something that's frightening to you, when I am afraid, I will trust in God. So the way to submit without fear or without being frightened by any fear is to be like Jesus. To see him reviled, to see him trusting God, and to trust God yourself in a very different situation, but with the same results of honoring the Lord with your life.